You have your Bible with you? Hold it up in the air. Did you bring the right clothing today to church? Oh, that's a good sight. Hold it up a minute. TV guys, shoot that. I want everybody in the area to see that uh, people here bring their Bible to church. And uh, thank you for bringing it and uh, having it with you, checking the preacher out. You know, if you don't bring your Bible to church, I could teach anything. You wouldn't know the difference. But boy, when you got your Bible, you just hold my feet right to the fire, don't you? And that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. The book of Acts, chapter 2 today, the subject is the gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit. And it's Acts chapter 2, and as soon as you find it, stand to your feet with me, if you will, please. And we do that to honor the Word of God, and I'll read to you Acts chapter 2. Verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. An important truth there. One accord. They were getting along, and they were in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. So we're in a house somewhere in Jerusalem. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with tongues or other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, if you will go with me down to verse 14, Peter then stands and he preaches. He stood up with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he said, and I won't read it. You go all the way down through the passage there, and we'll pick it up in verse number 30. Uh, verse number 37. Go all the way to 37. And the portion we're skipping is the sermon that Peter preached there that day on the streets of Jerusalem on Pentecost. Now verse 37. When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And there's the title of the message, the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all them that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward or wicked generation. Then they that gladly received his word, those that accepted the gospel, the word of truth, they were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Thank you, and you may be seated. If I, if I were to ask you this morning to take a piece of paper or the edge of your church program and bulletin there and uh, write a grade down for your knowledge of the Trinity, I wonder if it wouldn't go something like this. I'd say, okay, now grade yourself on what you know about God the Father 
And across this congregation, everybody would think for a few moments about, what do I know about Almighty God? And you'd write a letter grade on the side of the program there. Maybe you put a B plus, let's say. I know a lot about God the Father. Maybe you've never been to church much, and you put, I'm a, I'm a D. I don't know much about it at all. Well, that's okay. It's time to start learning, isn't it? And then I said, now, what do you know? Grade yourself on your knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I think, well, if you've been coming here very long, you probably put an A or an A-plus down there. I know a lot about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then I would say, now, grade yourself regarding your knowledge of the Holy Spirit. And I would just bet from what I know about people, listening to people through the years, that the grade would plummet. And you might put C or C minus or D. You say, I don't, I don't really know as much about the Holy Spirit as I do about the Father and about the Son. Generally speaking, this is a very neglected area. In fact, some churches almost never talk about it. It's been said that the Holy Spirit is the neglected member of the Trinity. One of the reasons I think that is in our King James Bible, it refers to him as a ghost. And so today people get confused about that. In the days in which the Bible was translated, the old version of the Bible was translated, that simply meant a spirit. Now today people have been to too many movies and they confuse that with all kinds of things. But the Holy Ghost means the Holy Spirit and uh, they're synonymous terms. Another reason I think people don't know about the Holy Spirit, not only has there been a neglect in preaching and teaching on it in many circles, but I think also people are fearful of it. Because when you begin to talk about the Holy Spirit, a lot of people begin to associate that with extreme emotionalism. The setting here is Pentecost, chapter 2, very familiar Bible term. Pentecost didn't occur today for the first time when we read about it here. Pentecost was a long-established Bible tradition, a Jewish tradition, Pentecost was a feast, and it went back all the way to the book of Exodus and along in there. So the Jews had been having Pentecost as an annual feast every year for, uh, you know, centuries. But on this day, Pentecost would change its meaning to the rest of the world. Now, in John chapter 16, and just flip back there to the left in your Bible for a few chapters, John chapter 16, just before Jesus left, in fact, the night before Jesus went to the cross, John chapter 16 and verse number eight, uh, 7, Jesus told the apostles, now I'm going to be leaving you, but I'm going to send another in my name who will be like me of the same nature that I am, and that was the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. He calls him in verse 7 of John 16, the Comforter with a capital C. And here are the words of Jesus. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away, and if I go not away, the Comforter, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. The very next day, Jesus died. Three days later, he resurrected from the grave. 
About six weeks later, he ascended back to heaven. And he promised, though, that he would send the Holy Spirit to replace himself. After all, he was in a body. He could only be in one place at one time. But the Holy Spirit would be a spirit being who could be anywhere and everywhere all the time. And so Jesus said, you'll actually be better off if I go back to heaven and send the Holy Spirit than if I stay here. So what we've read about the Holy Spirit coming was actually a fulfillment of a promise of the prophecy that the Lord Jesus Christ had made back in John's chapter 16, the evening before his death. Throughout the, whole, throughout the Holy Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is always associated with activity, with action. The Holy Spirit in the Bible is not associated with emotion. In the Bible, the Holy Spirit is associated with action, with doing things, with getting things done, with, with energy. In fact, one of the words describing him is a Greek word, E-N-E-R-G-O, from which we get our word energy. The Holy Spirit, think of him as holy energy, if you will. And at creation, in Genesis chapter 1, you open your Bible, and the very second verse that you read in the Bible, the Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and so he was active at creation. And then in Luke chapter 1, a little girl is visited by an angel, a little Jewish maiden, and she discovers that the Holy Spirit has visited her and he has created life in her womb, and the Virgin Mary will give birth to the Savior. The incarnation was a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. He was active in creation. He is active in the incarnation, and he is also active at the resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, it said, the Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And so we picture the dead body of Jesus lying in a tomb. And on the third day, the Holy Spirit comes and Jesus is resurrected. His body is resurrected. And the Holy Spirit is active in creation, in incarnation, in resurrection. And today, I really want you to see he is active in salvation as well. Now, if you're taking notes with me today, number one would be, since the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is the possession of every believer. Since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is the possession. If you're a Christian, you possess the Holy Spirit of God. In chapter 2, and verse number 38, read with me again. Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so we see that word ghost or spirit the same, the same word translated throughout the rest of the Bible in other places as wind or a breath. If you'll go, if you ever look at the original languages, the Greek or the Hebrew, the word for spirit is always wind or breath. And so you could literally read that, and here's what Peter was saying. You will receive the breath of God. 
You will receive the wind of God. He will come upon you and he will breathe into you the very essence of the nature of God himself. Now, why would he say it? Why would he refer to the third person of the Trinity as being a wind or a breath? Here's why. Because the Spirit of God is like a wind in the sense that, well, wind is invisible, isn't it? Jesus said in John chapter 3, he said, you know, you can't see the wind. The wind comes and the wind goes, but you can see its effects. The wind is invisible. And the reason it's hard to get people to really engage with you on the Holy Spirit is they, they can't see him. He is a spirit being. He's like the wind. Nobody questions that the wind is real, but you've never seen it. You can't see it. It's invisible, and so is the Spirit of God. He's also like the wind in that he is powerful. There's nothing so powerful as the wind. I was thinking about my message as I was taking a little walk yesterday morning, and I was out in my neighborhood, and I'd looked on my phone, and the wind was gusting 14 to 16 miles per hour or something like that. And as I walked, I could actually feel the resistance of the wind. It was so much easier walking when I was going away from the wind than when the wind was coming into my face. Now, that's not a whole lot of wind. But we who live here in South Carolina, we've seen a hurricane come with 100 or 110 miles an hour, and we know the devastation. We know the power of wind. Nothing is more powerful on this earth than the wind. And so the Bible says, when the holy wind comes, you're not going to see him with your physical eye, but there's going to be evidence, there's going to be power that will be demonstrated in the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the third thing, the Spirit is like the wind because the wind is essential to life. You know that sometimes in some of our cities, particularly I think it's uh, L.A. and that area out there, it's sort of in a bowl, and there are mountains around it. And if the winds don't blow, the pollution comes in, and the air is stagnant, and it can get to where they even warn you, don't go outside because the, the, the air quality is so bad. And you know what it takes to fix that? It takes wind, and the wind comes, and it cleans the pollution out. Thank God for the wind because it cleanses the very air that we need to live by. And in the same way, the Holy Spirit cleanses and the Holy Spirit provides something that is absolutely essential to our life, just like the wind does. In Genesis chapter 2, in verse number 7, God created the body of Adam out of the clay out of the dust of the earth. And then what does God do? He's just a, he's a clay figure laying there on a shelf somewhere that God has created. And the Bible says in Genesis 2 and 7, and God breathed into his nostrils. God got down and did the same thing we do sometimes with a person who is unable to breathe. He pressed his breath into the nostrils and into the lungs of Adam, and Adam's eyes opened, and he blinked, and he sat up, and he drew in the breath and the oxygen 
and man became a living soul, the Scripture says. Life is in the Spirit, in the wind of God. Now, there's a spiritual analogy. When a human being gets saved, God breathes into that person the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit comes, and He activates, and He energizes a whole new nature. In the Bible, Jesus talked about, you must be born again of the Spirit and of the water in John chapter 3. What did He mean? He meant that the Holy Spirit must come into your being, and true salvation is not just you coming forward in a church service or listening to somebody present the gospel and bowing your head and praying a prayer. True salvation is you not only repenting and receiving Christ into your life to forgive you of your sins, it's the Holy Spirit coming into your life. And when He comes in, He brings eternal life, He brings spiritual life into spiritually dead people. Look at verse number 38 again, and I want to point out a couple of things that every Christian needs to understand. First of all, the Holy Spirit coming to you as a Christian when you're born again is a certainty. Verse 38, a certainty. Here's what I base that on. He says, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost when you repent of your sins. You shall receive. It doesn't say you might receive it. It doesn't put it in the realm of possibility. It puts it in the realm of certainty. You will receive the Holy Spirit when you trust Christ as your Savior. Number two, I want you to notice something else here in verse 38. Notice the word, the gift. You shall receive the gift. And I want you to circle that in your Bible because it's singular. It's not plural. So much teaching we hear today about the Holy Spirit is off-center. It's, it's not biblical because we, the emphasis is on the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not talking about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm talking about the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit of God Himself is what He's saying right here. And then I want you to notice with me, it's a once-and-for-all gift. In John 14 and 16, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will abide with you. And the word abide there has the idea of permanently dwelling in you. So review it with me now. Don't want you to, I don't want anybody to ever come to this church and miss this truth. This is so important. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit of God indwelled you is the term we use. He moved in and He lives in you. He lives in your body. What? Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? 1 Corinthians 6, 19. The Holy Spirit lives in me. My body is the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. And He's not going to leave me. He's not going to leave me. He puts up with all kinds of things that Christians do and drag Him into it. They drag Him into a bar. They try to smoke him out. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> but uh, they do all kinds of things. But the Holy Spirit, he said, I will abide with you. How long? Forever. Forever and ever and ever. The Holy Spirit there 
is going to be with you once you're saved. Now, there were three evidences here of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost that day. So go back up to verse 2 with me and notice, first of all, they heard something. They heard a mighty rushing wind, and you and I have all heard those winds here in South Carolina, haven't we? A mighty rushing wind. People describe tornadoes, they say, it sounds like a locomotive about to run over the house or the place where I am. That's exactly what they heard here at Pentecost. They heard something. There were three evidences that God gave them that the Holy Spirit had come. The second thing there, if you'll notice, they saw something. They saw something. In verse 3, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. Notice the words carefully. It didn't say fire came on them. It said cloven tongues, and we, and we picture flames as being tongues. They're licking the wood around them, we even say. So we picture a tongue, a, a formation, but it's sort of moving and ebbing and flowing. But it was not fire. It doesn't say it was fire. It says it was like fire. It gave the appearance of fire. So they heard something. They saw something, and then they said something in verse number four. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so they heard something. Now, let's talk about the tongues here a moment. You may want to write a word there in your Bible, draw your little circle there around tongues. The Greek word is glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A, glossa. And glossa means a known and understood language. And here's what I want you to see, that the tongues here are not the tongues, the unknown tongue of 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. These are a physical appearance of something that looked like fire. It had a sound when the Holy Spirit came, like a mighty, mighty wind roaring over the house. And the people then began to speak tongues, known languages. Now, why am I so certain of my interpretation? Go down, if you will, to verse number 7. They were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another. The people, they'd now gone out onto the street and left the house. And the people gathered around them in this crowded city of Jerusalem here on this feast day, they were amazed and they marveled, saying, Behold, are not all of these who speak in these tongues Galileans? And yet, how hear we every man in his own tongue or language wherein we were born? And beginning in verse 9, it gives me 17 different languages that were being spoken that day in the city of Jerusalem. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, and I won't read them all, but you go all the way through verse 9, verse 10, verse 11. And in verse 11, they make this comment. We hear them speak in our tongues, our language, the wonderful works of God. This is not an unknown tongue. Here's what this is. On, when the Holy Spirit came that day, he wanted these people to witness to the truth of Jesus Christ. The city of Jerusalem was full. Up to a million people had poured into that city as they did every year for the feast of Pentecost. 
A million people have come from all over the land, and they speak different language groups, different languages. And the apostles are given this supernatural gift. They can speak a language that they didn't ever learn in school. They miraculously and supernaturally can speak to people and explain the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives, and it lists the languages that God gave them the ability to speak that day. I hear people say the evidence of having the Holy Spirit is speaking in an unknown tongue. This is not an unknown tongue. There's, God listed the languages there so you would know what languages were being spoken. These are not unknown, ecstatic utterances as people think of today. These are clearly languages that people supernaturally could speak in just a few moments of time so that the gospel could be given to the world. Now, let me tell you something really important about the Holy Spirit. This is why you cannot overemphasize teaching the Holy Spirit. The test of your salvation is this. Does the Holy Spirit live within you? Listen to this verse. Maybe we want to jot the reference down. Romans 8, 9. Romans 8 and 9. If any man have not the Spirit of God, he is none of his. None of his. If you don't have the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible says you're not, a, you're not saved. The Holy Spirit is not a second work of grace where you get saved and then later get the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in at the moment of regeneration. The Holy Spirit comes in the moment you receive Christ as your Lord and your Master, and He indwells you. You didn't see Him. You didn't feel anything. He's not the agent of emotion, he comes in and he lives within you, but he changes you. He makes a difference. The wind of the Spirit. He is invisible, but he is powerful. He's powerful enough to take an absolute immoral reprobate and clean them up and make them fit for heaven. That's how powerful he is. The power of the Holy Spirit. Since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's the possession of every believer. Number two, since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit's the power of evangelism. And so now you have 120 people spread in this crowd of up to a million people. And I think they were witnessing to those people. Now, here's something really important to understand the background of this passage. This is the first time the gospel has been publicly proclaimed since Christ resurrected from the grave. Christ died on the cross, was buried for three days. Then we go six weeks or so, 50 days to Pentecost. Here's what's interesting. There's no record in the Bible of a single soul ever being saved on the earth during that six-week period of time. There's no record in the Bible of a soul on the entire earth being saved during that six weeks. Whoa. 
There's never been six weeks when nobody was saved across the whole world. Why were people not saved? Because the Holy Spirit was not here. Jesus said, you go to Jerusalem and you wait, and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to work in your life. And so Peter now stands up with these 120 other people, and they begin to preach, and 3,000 people are saved in one brief period of time that day. You see, the Holy Spirit, hear me, hear me, hear me, Florence Baptist Temple. The Holy Spirit is essential if we're going to get people saved. We've got the idea that people get saved anytime they want, any way they want, that they hear the, you know, a person can say, I think I'll get saved today, and they go pick up a track and read it or turn on a television preacher or or, or, or they go talk to a Christian or a preacher, and they can just get saved. No, I got news for you. You can't get saved anytime you want without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent. He is the power of God unto salvation. And what does he do? Well, he draws people to him. And so on that day, remember six weeks before in this city, within one mile of where Peter stood and preached that day, within one mile, six weeks ago, they crucified Jesus Christ. What's the big difference? They're saying, nail him. Today, they're saying, we're interested in this guy, Jesus. We want to hear what they have to say. There's one big difference. The Holy Spirit had come. That person that you would like to see saved, who is rock hard today and cares nothing about the things of God that mocks and ridicules and tells you to mind your business when you talk to them about the Lord, that person can be changed. But you can't change them. But the Holy Spirit of God can come and change them. I've seen some people who, when you said Florence Baptist Temple, they would, ah, oh, that place. And now they're deacons. What's the difference? It's the Holy Spirit. He draws people. And so out of that crowd that day of up to a million people, 3,000 people came and said, I know what happened here six weeks ago but I'm ready to make him my Savior. I believe in him. Look it back again with me to John 16. I want to show you a tremendously important passage. John chapter 16 and verse 8, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And in verse 8, he says, and when he has come, he will do three things. He will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to the Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the prince of the world is judged. Here's what Jesus was saying. When the Holy Spirit comes, he's the one who will convict people of sin. You and I make a mistake trying to convict people of sin. That's the Holy Spirit's work. By the way, he convicts them of S-I-N, singular, not S-I-N-S, sins, 
the things they do. In fact, he specifically convicts them of the sin of unbelief. And so a man comes to our church. He's been an unbeliever. He's been hardened against the things of God. But he sits here and the Holy Spirit of God can work. And that man can move from a hardened, rebellious, anti-letting the Lord into his life. That man can move to a position of salvation because the Lord convicts him of his unbelief. Not about all the sins that we think of as being sins, his immorality or his, his whatever the sins may be in his life. The sin the Holy Spirit convicts you of is unbelief. Why are you rejecting Jesus? Why would you turn down the cross and walk away from the only hope you have of salvation in all of eternity? And then not only does he convict people of sin, he convicts them of righteousness. The need for righteousness is what that's saying. We can't be righteous enough to please God. Only the Holy Spirit can show us our need for righteousness is satisfied through what Jesus does for us. And then he convicts us of judgment, the coming judgment, that we need to be prepared to meet the Lord. We don't know the day when he either will come or we will go to him. Then when we receive Christ, here's what happens. The moment that an unbelieving sinner turns to Christ in faith and trusts the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in, and here's what he does. He regenerates. That's the Bible word. It means he gives life. He produces life in the heart, in the soul, in the mind, in the being of that unsaved person. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. And what he's talking about is the Spirit comes in and gives us the new birth. Here's the way to say it. Salvation is more than getting man out of earth into heaven. Salvation is getting God out of heaven and into man. And that's what salvation really is. All we all, you listen to people, and, and, and we make a mistake sometimes. We think the whole idea of witnessing is just explaining the gospel, but there's one more step that people need to understand. Salvation is more than getting an unsaved person out of earth and into heaven. It is getting God out of heaven and into that person. And boy, when that happens, you'll have true conversions. You won't have somebody then dropping out and turning their back on the Lord six weeks later. When people get the Holy Spirit living within them, it's real, my friend. If any man be in Christ, he is what? He's a new person. He's a new creation. And so that day after the Spirit came, 3,000 people were saved. And not only were 3,000 saved there, but the gospel began to spread across the whole world. And it's still spreading because the Holy Spirit is still working across the world today. Now, listen, hear me. Look up here. Do not miss this. Throughout this last two months, I've been putting this huge emphasis on revival, on prayer, on faith, on being filled with the Spirit, and on evangelism. 
You know why those four come together? You can't be saved without faith. You can't have the Holy Spirit without prayer. And you can't get people saved without the Holy Spirit. They all work together. You can't separate them. They're one whole. If we're going to have revival, if we're going to be an effective church going forward in the future, we've got to have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit like we've never had him before. Because we're in a more wicked world than we were 50 years ago when this church started. We've got the whole culture against us right now. And if we think that we're going to do it through methodologies and good ideas and promotions and personalities and, and, and programs and stuff like that, we're, we're, going to be, we're going to be severely disappointed. We've got to have the same power that was at Pentecost at the Florence Baptist Temple. And we can't have it. We can't have it, ladies and gentlemen. One last thought. Since Pentecost, since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is the possession of every Christian. Since Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is the power that God uses to save people. He takes what Christ did at the cross and he applies it in people's lives and produces a new creature. And since Pentecost, number three, the Holy Spirit is the provision for us to live godly lives. Jerry Vines called me yesterday afternoon, and uh, he said, I just wanted to talk to you, Bill. He said, man, I'm just discouraged. I said, what's going on? And he began to tell me about a bunch of things going on in the religious world. And so, um, you know, who am I to give Jerry Vines advice? But I did. I said, Brother Jerry, I, I've just decided I can't look at all that stuff anymore. It just drives me nuts. We've just got to refocus because you know what? The power of the Holy Spirit has not changed no matter what happens in our culture. We have that power living within us, and God has provided for us to live a godly life. John 16, 13, Jesus in that same conversation, I won't refer you there for uh, time's purposes, but when he, the spirit of truth, that's the Holy Spirit, has come, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into truth. Now, let me give you a brief testimony, and I'll close. Early in my ministry, I went to hear some preachers preach. And boy, they talked about, you young preachers, I'm gonna t- you've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit in your life or you're going to preach and you're never going to build a church and nothing's going to happen. You've got to get the power of the Holy Spirit. And I bought their books and I read their books. And I really, with all the sincerity of my heart, I wanted that in my life. And I thought, if I can just be dedicated enough to the Lord, if I can just be surrendered enough to Him, if I can just clean up my act and get rid of the bad thoughts and get rid of losing my temper and get rid of everything in my life that doesn't please the Lord, if I can just do that, you know what's going to happen? Then the power of God's going to come on me. And then that 
day I would go out after praying of that and thinking about that, and you know what, I'd mess up again. And I almost lapsed into despair. I almost thought, I can never really have the Holy Spirit to use me. And then I heard another preacher say this. He said, we don't work our way to godliness. And stop and think about that. You don't work your way to godliness. You don't make yourself into a better Christian. And I discovered a glorious truth. I don't need to give up my sins to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit to give up my sins. You got it? It's not trying and trying and trying and trying to clean up your life and live a perfect life, though we want to live to please the Lord. But it's surrender to the Holy Spirit. Lord, here I am. As sorry as I am, you can have all there is. I surrender myself to the Lord. I yield to the Holy Spirit. I decide I'm going to obey the Lord no matter the cost. Whatever it takes, I'm going to give it to the Lord. And I let him fill me. I don't need to one by one check them off and give up my sins, hoping I'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. You know what? He changes my wanter, and I'll want to let, give up my sins. Won't be a struggle then. It'll be the Lord doing it for me. Our heads are bowed. The timeless theme, earth and heaven will pass away. It's not a dream, God will make all things new that day. Gone is the curse from which I stumbled and fell. How the nations 
Savior 